Welcome to Diverse, the podcast of the Society of Women Engineers. SWE supports the advancement of women in engineering and technology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and SWE's blog, All Together, at altogether.swe.org. Looking for more information and data on women in engineering? Head over to research.swe.org and review the groundbreaking research that SWE has been conducting. SWE's research efforts include reporting on women of color in engineering and how community colleges may play a role in getting more women to graduate with engineering degrees. You can also check out the annual SWE Literature Review in SWE Magazine's State of Women in Engineering issue. Welcome to SWE Stories, Tales from the Archives. I'm Ann Perusik, the Director of Editorial and Publications for the Society of Women Engineers. And I'm Troy Eller-English, SWE's archivist. This is the second episode in our two-part series celebrating SWE members' contributions to the first lunar landing, which occurred 50 years ago on July 20th, 1969. In the first episode, we shared excerpts from SWE oral history interviews with fellows Barbara Crawford Johnson and Ivy Hooks, who described their work on the Apollo program in the early and mid-1960s. We'll hear more about their experiences in this episode as well. In the first episode, we also shared a clarion call from SWE's first president, Beatrice Hicks, who stressed in a speech at the U.S. Air Force Association Space Symposium for Women back in September 1962, that because of the nation's shortage of technological and scientific manpower, the only way for the U.S. space program to succeed was to train and hire women engineers. If you haven't listened to that episode already, you should check it out. You know, there were actually several space symposiums for women that were held in 1962. Uh, Prior to that Air Force Association symposium in September, a group of advisors from industry, government, and academia organized the first International Women's Space Symposium in Los Angeles in February 1962. It was chaired by Shirley Thomas, who was a radio and television personality and the author of the eight-volume book series Men of Space, which was published in the 1960s. SWE was one of 28 organizations that supported the symposium. And Beatrice Hicks also spoke at this event about the opportunities for women in the space program. But I think my favorite part of the symposium was the luncheon speaker. Edith Head was a famous Hollywood costume designer who was nominated for 35 Academy Awards during her career, and she won eight of them. And here's the synopsis of her speech as written in the May 1962 SWE newsletter. Quote, At the luncheon, Edith Head, costume director for Paramount Studios, discussed women's space fashions. She showed sketches of her styles based on technical requirements. She spoke of the shoulder bag designed to hold oxygen and power packs, the walking stick with radio equipment, the eye visor with radio antenna attached, and the reversible cape for extremes of weather. She said she felt women should look attractive in space and therefore designed the pressurized suit in gray and the accessories in bright red. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So unfortunately, I don't have any pictures of these designs, 
but I love the image of a female astronaut sauntering around the moon in trendy gray mod spacesuit and carrying a bright red purse with all sorts of technical stuff in it and a walking stick, you know, while you're walking on the moon and her cape fluttering in the lunar breeze. And (laughs) it seems silly now. But it really reflects the general non-technical public's optimism about space travel. It certainly does. I, I love it. But, um, but the truth was that the reality of space exploration, it was really far more serious and challenging. And the SWE members who contributed to the lunar landing certainly experienced and understood that. During your SWE oral history interview, SWE past president Armin Taharnas who was a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Air Force and was awarded the Air Force Commendation Medal for Meritorious Service to the Space Program, uh, discusses this. Now, Arminta was the chief of the Program Control Division of the Gemini Target Vehicle Program from 1963 through 1967. The Gemini Agena Target Vehicle was an unmanned spacecraft developed by NASA in the early 1960s to test equipment and practice maneuvers for later flights in NASA's Gemini and Apollo programs. Harness spoke about her experiences in a 2003 oral history interview with SWE's first archivist, Lauren Cada. We've edited the excerpt for length, but you can find a link to the transcript for the entire interview on altogether.swe.org. Do you remember how you felt about being part of that Gemini program? Did you have a sense of of what it was a window into? Well, uh, I don't know. Well, you know, this was the first manned vehicle in space. Now, I didn't we did I did not work on the portion of the the manned, the capsule, the man. I worked on the vehicle that they docked with in space and then they used that was the Gina target vehicle and then because they had very little propulsion capability in their spacecraft they when they docked with with the Gemini then they could use that propulsion to tool around space. So did you have much interaction with the astronauts while you were working on Gemini? Uh, no. Okay. No, not really. Uh, they were always there. At, when at, in, in, in Houston, you would have a, uh, you know, a review, of, periodically reviews, in big off, big, big, big room, you know, with and everybody has their own desk and stuff, and all the astronauts were there. Uh, I knew Buzz Aldrin very, very well, because Buzz was an Air Force officer had the desk next to mine <laughs> out here at Los Angeles Air Force Base. Wow. And uh, he went, he left us to go to Houston to become an astronaut. Um, Did you ever think you wanted to be an astronaut? I wouldn't have minded, but unfortunately women weren't allowed to do that then. Arminta Harness also described watching the failure of Gemini 6 when the unmanned Agena target vehicle exploded in the atmosphere before reaching orbit on October 25th, 1965. I will never forget our first launch. Uh, 
I was on top of a ten-story building at the cave, overlooking. You can look down at the beach, where, where you know. And our first launch, and you waited, and you waited, and you waited, and all you could hear was the controller saying, "No joy, no joy, no joy," and the thing had blown up at the edge of space. It did. It took off. Beautiful, beautiful takeoff, but whatever happened, we never did really find out exactly what happened, but it blew up at the edge of space before it got a chance to get into orbit. Uh, How did you feel when that happened? Horrible. Yeah. I mean, that's, you've been working on it for, you know, three or four years, and our first launch, and we lost it. Uh, but, you know. You go back to the drawing board and figure out what happened and, and uh, see that it doesn't happen again. And then you moved on from the Gemini program. Yeah, uh, I was transferred. Jeez. Uh, I was, I, I, for a while I was into a, a classified program that I couldn't, I couldn't, I can't talk about. But I wasn't in it very long and then I went to, I was transferred to Washington, D.C. And in the uh, uh, National Reconnaissance Laboratory, where all of the pictures that are taken from uh, space vehicles, okay, uh, the unmanned ones that are taking pictures of various things around the world, all those pictures go into the National uh, Photographic Laboratory. And in some of the ways of capturing some of that film was fantastic. They would, um, you had a, a, an object um, circling the earth that had uh, camera equipment on board. Because this was before well, electronics. This is, you know, we were really stilly, still in the, in the, <laughs> the photographic era. era. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, You've got, you've got film up there, you, and but no humans anywhere around, and so that you, you, they worked out a way of the film would be dropped, would be would be ejected automatically from the camera after the, and then a parachute would come out, and then an airplane would come in with uh, the back of it open down the cabin, I mean the back cargo plane. Then they, they had a triangular like wire thing out there and they would snag that parachute in in air as it was coming down and pull it into the plane. I mean it sounds so crude now but it that's the first the first photographs in space that's the way they were processed. You you had this aircraft out there and as the parachute came down, and with the, the the capsule that had the the photographs in it, and they snagged it and took it into the plane. Wow! Really, <laughs> it sounds so crude today. <laughs> it was fun, and it was. I mean, it was the the edge of technology at the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our harnesses story really emphasizes the limited technology the people behind the space program were working with and how groundbreaking and audacious the lunar landing was.
Yes. And how far technology and scientific understanding have come since then. I'm glad Arminta could share her experiences with us to help us understand this in the 21st century. I'm also glad that SWE Fellow and Achievement Award recipient Barbara Crawford Johnson shared her experiences with us in the 2003 oral history interview with Lauren Cada. In the last episode, we featured some of her memories working on North American Rockwell's proposal to design and build Apollo's program command and service module. But in that interview, she also spoke about her experiences as supervisor of the Apollo Entry Performance Unit. We've edited the following excerpt for length, but you can find a link to the complete interview transcript on altogether.sui.org. We started out, uh, we were in the re-entry, they called it. We changed it to entry, but, and we, uh, we, we did the performance on all the traje design trajectories, spelled out the, some of the systems requirements for, in the environment and so forth they were going to be in. And uh, little by little we expanded the entry from the deorbit. So that got us into the boost, into the rocket part of the booster part of the mission. So we had the deorbit burn, and that, and then the the getting the attitude changed for the entry and so forth. So then this led us into uh, the uh, uh, Goddard had the uh, guidance, and uh, so little by little we. Uh, if the guidance failed. So we got involved with the guidance, the backup guidance, the entry monitor system. Now the, and the entry monitor system was uh, to the company, anyway, it seemed kind of uh, outrageous because it was a, a plotter, an XY plot. Of a, it's a graphical display. And all, they were all used to needles fly to, fly from, all these kind of engages, you know. But this was wild, you know, in their, in their minds. And it was very negative to, to, at first. And we developed a lot, it, it was a display of load factor, acceleration load factor, and uh, inertial velocity. And then it had limit lines, there would be a, a display of what the primary guidance would was doing as it came into the Earth's atmosphere. And there would be limit lines to identify whether it was working properly. Okay. And we had a, we had a, uh, an initiation of entry which was triggered by uh, O5G gravitation. And um, it's around 400,000 feet. And then uh, we had an indicator where the lift vector was, the lift vector up or down. So at any rate, if the prime, and we had, uh, there were range to go lines on it. So the, it was like an energy, potential kinetic energy. And so if the guidance was working properly, it would stay within this boundary these boundary lines, limit lines. And if it wasn't, they could take over and manually fly it. Not accurately, but grossly, they 
they would come within sort of a, a gross area of where the splashdown or the ship would be using these range-to-go lines. And every time we'd have a flight, uh, one of the astronauts would look at me and say, is the, e is the EMS going to work, Bobby? You know, <laughs> because the first time it was an Earth orbit thing, it didn't matter so much, but the accelerometer didn't work quite properly. Anyway, it did work fine throughout the uh, lunar missions. And now they have, ec they have graphical displays sure. everywhere. But, and, but I think this might have been the first one. Uh, I, don't, I don't really know for sure, but I think it might have been. One of the other things that, well, for Earth orbit missions, uh, we did in my group, and this was maybe something I did, I don't remember. But instead of flying a, a circular orbits, or as near circular as you can, we initiated kind of flying more of an elliptical orbit because we rigged up a scheme whereby if the, if we couldn't deorbit with the, with the service propulsion, we would separate and we would deorbit with the command module reaction control jets. Okay. And we could do this at apogee, which would require the least amount of propellant to deorbit us, even though we wouldn't land particularly where we wanted. It would get us into the Earth's captured by the Earth's atmosphere. So we would, wouldn't be stray in, in orbit which uh, you wouldn't like to see. Bobby Johnson was promoted to manager of Command and Service Module Systems Engineering at Rockwell, which was a sprawling 150-person department that oversaw a variety of groups working on the Apollo mission. As time went on, they, if they didn't know where to put some group, they put it in my group. <laughs> I had uh, crew procedures for the Procedures on the on, in case of for how to operate, set them up, and and in case of failures, what to do, and the, for the equipment that we built, that the crew interfaced with. Yeah. And I had, um, and they also had a psychologist, psychologist, I guess he was. Crew for the crew, in the crew procedures, most of them did the flight testing before the astronauts, like in these uh, K ones. 35 or whatever, where they do these zero G's and some of this underwater testing. Yeah. yeah. And then I had the flight test group, flight test requirements. And um, I had uh, on-orbit consumables, well, all the consumables, consumable managements, batteries, uh, oxygen, you know, like just the management of the consumables. And... Um, what else did we have? We had the ascent, orbit, and descent trajectory stuff, orbital mechanics. Then we, when we put experiments in the, in the service module bay, which we call the J mission, so we had the, ex, the experimental requirements and in the interface with the, uh, they called them uh, principal scientists or something. And then what else did we have? Um, 
I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'd have to look on one yeah, of these. Yeah, that's okay. Or it's, charts. I mean, I, a lot. <laughs> it yeah. Was, it was all in the group. It was a big group. Up, huh? It was uh, maybe 150. Big group. And, I mean, what was, what was the atmosphere like? I mean, there had to be a lot of adrenaline. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> and, you know, uh, we, uh, we, we were aggressive. We were very active. And we interface with the NASA very well. And when uh, sometimes we didn't think things were going quite right with the company, we would sometimes suggest to the NASA people that they suggest to Rockwell or whatever, <laughs> you know. And it worked. It worked. Sweet Past President Naomi McAfee also described her contributions to the lunar landing during a 2003 oral history interview with Lauren Cada. McAfee worked in reliability engineering at the Westinghouse Defense and Electronics Systems Center, and she was primarily focused on airborne missile control and radar systems and communication satellites before she was assigned to projects related to the Apollo program. One of the first uh, programs I worked on was something called the Environmental Measurements Experiments. And what we were doing, or what it was doing, was measuring the bombardment of micrometeorites on things in space so that later on when they were doing designs for things like Apollo, um, the space station, and so forth, they would have an idea of how much exposure one was going to get from those and what type of design shielding one needed to assure that one of those did not poke a hole in the in the hull of whatever you were doing. Wow. Well, that experiment was supposed to last for something like two years. And it was put up in 1965. And it's still working. Wow. There's one minor problem. We forgot to put an off switch on it. Because, you know what, everyone knew it was not going to work for very long, or not longer than one or two years. But the design was so robust that is still going to this day. Uh, is it collecting useful information? I really don't know, but I would like to think it is. Mm -hmm. Another one uh, activity was helping to, de to design and uh, test the uh, black and white TV camera that took the first, the pictures of Neil Armstrong's first steps on the moon. That was a project you worked on with Westinghouse. With Westinghouse. And, uh, it's hard to describe the anticipation and the anxiety that one felt listening to them saying, okay, they've landed, well, hearing them land on the moon and then knowing that they were going to be coming out and that when they did come down and land or step off of the step onto the moon, that that camera would take the pictures and transmit them back to the earth. And just trying to know that uh, that that would work created quite a bit of stress. And of course, the other thing in the stress for that evening was that uh, the commentators would say, okay, they're getting ready to come out. And then they would stop and say, no, they're going to be there a few more minutes. <laughs> and in my household, we were going to celebrate this uh, landing with a glass of champagne. So we had the champagne bottle in the refrigerator, and of course, we were watching the TV set in another room. So they were coming out. So you'd jump up and run in and grab the champagne and the, and the glasses. And no, they weren't coming out. So you'd 
run back into the other room and put the champagne and the glasses back into the refrigerator. And finally, after this had happened several times, it was sort of the, like, this is ridiculous. So we took the, the wire cap off the cork and set the champagne on a coffee table where we could, it was there and we were still watching the TV. And as things went along, the champagne, of course, warmed up and blew the cork oh, no. out of the bottle. And when that pop went off, it was sort of like, what happened? What happened? <laughs> And even though they hadn't landed, we drank the champagne at that point in time. Oh, that's great. But uh, we did see the pictures of them coming. The, uh, well, the TV camera worked perfectly, and we saw Neil Armstrong take the first steps on the moon. I can only imagine the sense of pride and accomplishment that Naomi and these other SWE members felt when they were gathered around their televisions and watching that footage and knowing that they were a part of the reason that the mission succeeded. And thankfully... Ivy Hooks described that feeling in her 2003 oral history interview with Lauren Cato. Hooks was an aerospace technologist at NASA during the 1960s. In our last episode, we featured excerpts from her interview in which she discussed her work on modeling lighting on the moon, cost modeling, and flight dynamics. In that interview, she also vividly discussed the pride she felt in contributing to the first lunar landing. We've edited the following excerpt for length, but of course you can find a link to the complete transcript on altogether.sui.org. I was wondering what, um, what was it like being in Houston at that time? What was the atmosphere like and being part of that, uh, the development of the space program, the U.S. space program? Well, or did that impact you at all, even? Well, yeah, probably. Uh, <laughs> uh, of course, my family was all excited and French, you know, Ivy's going to work for NASA and it's part of the space program because the excitement of the space program then was really, you know, quite big. I remember, you know, you had to get security clearances and so they go back to your hometown and talk to your neighbors. Well, my neighbors thought that was the neatest thing in the whole world. <laughs> uh, my mother's neighbors, oh boy, somebody's going to come visit us from the FBI or whoever they are uh, and ask all these questions. Uh, they just thought that was really neat. And then I, I did hear back from some of the people who did some of those interviews. They said, it must be really neat to grow up in a small town where people think you're really wonderful. I, I think there was a very big, you know, I grew up in Texas. And so, first of all, you grow up with this big ego to start with, mm -hmm. right? That you're a Texan and therefore you're somehow a very special person. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, so, I'd, I'd already had that going for me. And then I was working at NASA and that was a very special thing. And, and, and everybody was, was interested. So... It was. It was a fun. It was, it was fun to be there at that time, and a part of it. And at the same time, I don't think I at the time had any sense of history. Um, let's see if I can explain that. When the first spacecraft landed on the moon, I tried to figure out what do I feel right now. What, how do I feel about this happening? I've worked on some of these pieces and parts of this. Um, you know, I've helped put somebody there. How do I feel about it? I said, well. Probably about like the sailmaker for Columbus felt, right? <laughs> you know, he made the sails and Columbus went away <laughs> and then came back a long time later. <laughs> um, but he did get back. And, you know, and it was an awesome voyage and, and new discoveries were made. And so if he'd made those sails and saw that ship sail away and come back and had that sense of somehow I participated in that. Yeah. Probably that was the same kind of thing. 
You know, that's an interesting analogy. One of the frustrations and mysteries for me when doing the research for this podcast has been that the SWE newsletter would frequently report on members' involvement in the space program throughout the 1960s, but the newsletter made absolutely no mention of the first lunar landing. No, that's so surprising, isn't it? I know. You know, I was surprised too, but the more I think about it, the less surprised I am. The lunar landing happened when the SWE newsletter was on summer hiatus, so I think the publication schedule is partly to blame. But then also, Apollo 12 landed on the moon just four months later, in November 1969. And then there were four more lunar landings in 1971 and 1972. So I think after the initial excitement, uh, the lunar landings became just a part of daily work for the SWE members who were working on it? You know, Troy, I think that's true, but you should also point out that the SWE newsletter was done entirely on volunteer basis. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> so if it was summer and SWE was on summer hiatus, well, you can imagine, uh, you know, what that did. So it, I guess yes. it's not so strange. <laughs> Um, you know, Armenta Harness gave a poignant description of the excitement of the Apollo program, giving way to a sense of routine and dullness. There were high points and there were low points. Sure. But they were exciting. It was wonderful to be a part of it. Yeah. Uh, and when it finally settled into a kind of a routine, it you felt lost. You really did. You missed that adrenaline shot every once in a while. That, that sure. really, uh, and it became, became, space travel became, you know. Well, we hope you enjoyed SWE members' recollections about their contributions to the first lunar landing. You can find links to the full transcripts of their oral history interviews on altogether.swe.org. On behalf of myself, Troy, and everyone else at SWE, Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Please don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud. If you have not already made plans to be a part of the largest gathering of women engineers in the world, visit our We19 conference site, we19.swe.org.